Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke's Gospel. This morning we'll be in chapter 14. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. We'll begin reading in verse 25. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Many of your Bibles will call this section the cost of discipleship. Uh, for indeed, this is, this is uh, how Christ identifies this passage. The cost of discipleship. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Friends, I want to begin by reminding us that going to church doesn't make anyone a Christian any more than going to a football game makes you a football player. Praying a prayer doesn't make you a Christian. Asking Jesus into your heart doesn't make you a Christian. Listening to sermons, teaching a Sunday school class, taking a job as a pastor, or even believing that there's only one God. The demons do this and tremble. For about 75 years in North America, we in the evangelical church have been lying to people in an attempt to sell Christianity like a used car. Our evangelism goes something like this. Hey, sir or madam, do you know that you're a sinner? And if they answer yes, we go on. Do you want to go to heaven when you die? And if they answer yes, we go on. Well, what you need to do is you need to pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart. And we think that this is sharing the gospel. Let me tell you, friends, it's not. Now, I'm not saying that all of these questions are bad or that they're totally wrong. What I'm saying is that in light of Jesus' teaching on the subject of a true call to salvation, on, in light of Jesus' teaching on what it is to truly be a Christian, to truly be His disciple, these questions are woefully inadequate. Woefully inadequate. 
In the sermon on the defects of modern evangelism, John MacArthur recounts a story from his early days in ministry where he goes through all the tools in the Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life tool bag. And when he had finished, he invited a young, a young Muslim to come and pray the prayer. You know the one. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Please come into my life and save me. And after praying the prayer, the Muslim said something very interesting. He announced excitedly, he said, I'm so happy. Now I have Jesus and Muhammad. You see, if that man had never said anything, MacArthur might have very well have asked this man to write the date in the back of his Bible and never again doubt that he was a child of God and that he was on his way to heaven when he died. And like and that man, like so many false converts in the church today who buy the Christian used car, he would have gone away having added Jesus like a cherry on top of ice cream to his life. Never being truly converted, but being falsely assured that he was on his way to heaven when he died. This morning we're going to examine Jesus' standard for salvation. His standard to distinguish between true and false discipleship. And as we go through it, friends, I want you to ask yourself this question. I want you to ask yourself, am I a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Or have I just added Jesus like a cherry on top of ice cream to my already good life? You see, friends, Jesus is perfectly clear. The cost of discipleship is everything. But Jesus is so glorious and worthy of all that we have and all that we are. There is nothing more valuable than Him in all of this passing world. So the proposition that I'll bring to you this morning from our Scripture text is this. Since the cost of discipleship is everything, true disciples will not knowingly hold anything back from God. True disciples will not knowingly hold anything back from God. Now, before we move on to the text this morning, I want to make a quick clarification Our passage is talking about how we can know if indeed we are true Christians. It's talking about how we can know if indeed we are true disciples of Jesus Christ. It is not teaching us a formula by which to purchase salvation. It is in no way teaching us or encouraging us that if we do A, B, and C, that we can earn His favor or salvation. It is in no way contradicting the clear fact that salvation is a free gift of God accomplished by Christ alone. And so when we examine the cost, sometimes we think, in terms of this is what it's going to cost me to purchase my salvation. But that's not the case at all. This is the evidence of whether or not you have received salvation, not the cost 
of your salvation. Jesus is, is basically communicating to us that there are, there are elements that are essential in the life of all true believers. To be, there's essential elements that must be in the heart of every true believer to identify whether or not we are true believers. And so that's why this is a heavy sermon in which we are going to examine ourselves, in which we're going to look at our hearts and see if indeed we are His. So now let's dig into the text. To help you to follow along with the message this morning, I've used the three very powerful declarations that we find in our text as the outline. First, unless you hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. Second, unless you hate your life, you cannot be my disciple. And third, unless you hate your stuff, you cannot be my disciple. Let's direct our attention now to that first declaration. Unless you hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 26, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I know that a lot of you turned your ears off almost immediately when I use that word hate. Now, I want you to turn your ears back on and let's look at what Jesus means here. The first thing that I'd like you to see is that Jesus is not commanding his followers to disobey every clear command of Scripture to love our families and our neighbors. That's not what he's saying here. But he's using this word hate to arrest our attention, to grip our attention. So that we ask, what does he mean by that? He's using powerful, powerful language. And he's doing it on purpose. He wants us to stop in our tracks. He wants us to stop and say, what do you mean? Hate my, my, my father and mother? Hate my, my sisters and brothers? Hate my wife and children? How can, you, how can you ask such a thing, Lord? Now, we can see more clearly the intent of the Master by looking at a similar sermon that he preached in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, friends, Jesus is using that word hate to arrest our attention. He's saying, listen up, listen to what I'm saying. And his meaning is clear and powerful. Your love and devotion for Jesus must be of such a supreme nature that it makes all lesser loves look like hatred in comparison. Your love for Jesus ought to make all lesser loves look like hatred in comparison. With that in mind, we could reword that first point, couldn't we? Unless you love Jesus more than your family, you cannot be His disciple. Unless you love Jesus more than your family, you cannot be His disciple. So what does that exactly mean? Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 61. 
a man comes running up to Jesus and he says, verse 61, I will follow you, Lord. He makes this bold declaration. I will follow you. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. Let me go and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to notice what's going on here. Jesus likens this man's commitment to following him to that of a man plowing a field. Okay? And telling his family goodbye or farewell, he likens to, to that same man plowing the field with his head turned the wrong direction. Well, anybody who's plowed a field knows what would happen if you had your head turned the wrong direction. You'd make crooked lines that were unfit for planting seed. So the question that we have before us is, why is Jesus basically denying this man's seemingly very reasonable request? Why is he basically saying, no, you can't go and say goodbye to your family? You see, friends, Jesus knows the hearts of every man. Jesus knows the minds of every man. And he's indicating that this man's family could be a temptation for him. That this man's family could tempt him if he wasn't resolved to follow the Lord. Despite their potential pleas that he stay with them. You see, well-meaning family members kind of act like Peter sometimes, don't they? You remember when Peter rebuked the Lord, when the Lord said that he must die at the hands of the Romans? And Peter rebukes him and says, Lord, that will never be. Well-meaning family members can often put their own desires before the will of God. Yet the true disciple of Jesus must be resolved to respond in the same way Jesus did. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance for me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Friends, I want to tell you about Mark and Gloria Zook. At age 30, Mark sensed a call to foreign missions. He and his wife were told, however, by family and friends alike, that they were crazy, that they were sinful, and that they were even selfish because they felt called to dangerous tribal missions. They were told that they were not in God's will, that they couldn't possibly be in God's will because God would never call a man to put his family in danger. The Zook family resolved to go. They resolved to obey the command of God and God mightily demonstrated his call on their lives by using Mark and Gloria to lead an entire tribe of violent, murderous people to radical repentance and faith in God. After Jim Elliot was murdered by the tribe that he was trying to reach for Christ, God saved the entire tribe of people through the faithful work of Jim Elliot's widow, Elizabeth. Can you imagine what her friends and family might have said to her when they found out that she was going to take her children and march in to share the love of Christ with the tribe that had just murdered her husband? Friends, if you love your family more than Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. 
I want to put this on a real practical level for you all because most of us are probably not going to march into the jungles with our families, but we face similar temptation to compromise. You see, love for family often shows up in a temptation to bend our standards, in a temptation to change the gospel or to not tell the truth. Many in my family family belong to the Mormon religion. And they think that they're following the same God, that they're trusting in the same Jesus, and that they're on their way to the same heaven when they die. And I'll tell you, this temptation is so strong at times to just keep the peace, or at worst to, to, to even soften or change the message, to preserve some sort of unity or, or fellowship, or to keep the friendship in the family. You see, to be uncompromising is viewed as being unloving. But, you, but I want you to see this, friends. I really want you to see this. This type of loving family more than God is really not loving family at all. This type of loving family more than, more than God is really not loving family at all. It's loving self so much that we're unwilling to suffer the reproach of Christ. It's loving self so much that you'd basically, I mean, just do the math, you'd basically rather your friends and family suffer in hell for eternity than to face the possibility that they might not like you for telling them the truth. This is the very same self-love that we see in John chapter 12, verse 42. John chapter 12, verse 42. This is a passage that just breaks my heart every time I read it. John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Him. I'm going to repeat that. They believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Friends, a true disciple does not knowingly hold back their family. A true disciple does not knowingly hold back their family. Let's turn our attention now to the second declaration. Unless you hate your life, you cannot be His disciple. Unless you hate your life, you cannot be His disciple. Verse 26, Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Did you catch that? Jesus wraps up that first declaration with those words. Yes, even his own life. Jesus is saying that if you do not love me more than your life, you're not a Christian. You haven't yet become my disciple. 
He then clarifies what this looks like by saying, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we listen to a lot of psychobabble on on the on Christian radio these days. Oh, your cross is your 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 rebellious teenager. Oh, your cross is is your angry boss. I want to tell you something, friends, in the first century, when these Jews heard Jesus say, bear your cross, they didn't get the idea in their heads that he was talking about their rebellious teenager. They knew that he was talking about an instrument of torture and death. They knew that he was talking about that instrument of death by by which he himself, just a short time after preaching this sermon, would suffer and die. This was the Romans, one of the Romans' favorite ways of putting to death criminals. Putting to death those who stood against Rome. They knew that Jesus was talking about a death march. He was asking them to, in figurative terms, To take up that common instrument of torture and death and follow Him. Be willing to die for me. The indication is clear. True believers will not knowingly hold back even their own lives if He asks it for the sake of the kingdom. Hear the words of Jesus. Do not fear those who... Kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Friends, this is not some new, novel teaching. This is the very attitude that we see in the lives of all of the apostles. When they would gladly endure beatings, torture, imprisonment, and even death for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In in, in Acts 5, Stephen, he flings his life away for the sake of the gospel because he loved Jesus more than his own life. In Acts 14, Paul... We read of Paul, it says, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and drug him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. He loved Jesus so much more than his own life that after being stoned, he gets up and he goes back in. Friends, this has always been the attitude of true belief. Always. In Daniel 3, we read of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Men of faith that would rather die than worship a false god. We see, in, we see Daniel himself in, in chapter 6, willing to be torn to pieces by lions in order to remain faithful to God. Friends, we have been given the meaning of life. We've been given the privilege to co-labor with God in the salvation of men through bringing them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has commanded us to go into all the world making disciples. To teach them to observe all that He commanded. 
He never promises that it'll be easy. He never promises that it'll be without pain, suffering, or even death. But He does promise this. He says, I will go with you. I will go with you. Friends, I feel like American Christianity is just waiting around for someone else to do it. I mean... I read of men who, men of faith who, who, who trusted God, though they might be killed, though they might lose all their earthly possessions, though their families might reject them. They go, they trust God, they live for Him, and if He asks it, they're willing to die for Him. But we sit in our comfortable churches and we say, I want my kids to go to a good school and to get a good job and to have a nice house and bear me pretty grandchildren. And friends, if they came to us and they said, Mom, Dad, God has called me to go. He's called me to serve a tribe of savages that have killed their last five missionaries. Friends, I fear, I fear that many of us would plead with them Please don't waste your life. Don't throw your life away like that. But if they are true disciples, they will, they will answer back. That could only happen. My life could only be wasted if I do not go. If I do not obey Christ. Friends, you know how much I love my little boys. You know how much I love them. And I tell you this with no, with no reservation at all. It would be better for them to die at age 16, having given all that they have to serve the living God, than it would be if they lived to 100, having nothing to show for it, but a good job, a nice house, and a comfortable retirement. Friends, hear me. Unless you love Jesus more than your own life, more than your own physical well-being, more than your comfort, you cannot be His disciple. We'll move now to the last declaration. Unless you hate your stuff, you cannot be His disciple. 14 verse 33 So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Friends, Jesus illustrated this, this point for us in a parable back in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 verse 16. Luke chapter 12 and verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night 
your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will those be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Friends, Friday, we suffered a massive tragedy in this country. Where a man or, or multiple men, I'm not sure, went in and murdered little children in one of the safest places they could possibly be, in a kindergarten classroom. Their parents didn't think that morning when they sent their kids to school that it was going to be the last time that they saw their kids. They didn't think because, friends, we don't think that way. We think that this world is everything and we, 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 we think that, this, that, that our stuff means so much. But look how quickly it can be taken away. Friends, our stuff doesn't mean anything. And Jesus says, unless you love me more than your stuff, you cannot be my disciple. I want you to see this. In the parable that he shares, it's not the fact that the man had a lot of stuff. It's not the fact that he had much grain. It's not the fact that he was rich. It wasn't his wealth. It was his attitude concerning his wealth. His wealth was his comfort. His wealth was his security. His wealth was what he had placed all of his hope in. It's obvious that this man was living for retirement, that he was living for the accumulation of wealth, because when he finally gets all that he labored for, he says, okay, now I'm going to live the good life. I want you to hear the words of Jesus. This is a command, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, a command. Do not, do not, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you love your stuff more than Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. You cannot be His disciple. The heart of true discipleship is willing to endure the loss of everything. Because a true disciple knows that Jesus is infinitely more valuable than anything in this passing world. He is. He is so much more valuable than anything in this passing world. You remember the parable of the kingdom where Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a man who in the field found a treasure and he quickly buries that treasure and he goes and he sells all that he has in an instant to have that field, to have that treasure. A true disciple of Jesus 
has that treasure and he's willing to give up everything for it. When we read about Job, we read that he was a man of great wealth. Great wealth. In his day, he had unparalleled wealth. We also read that he was a man of great faith. And when Satan is given permission to test Job's allegiance to God, how does he do it? He does it by making him prove that he loved God more than his family. He killed all of his children. More than his own life and health, he struck him with sores and and leprosy. And more than his stuff, he took away almost all that he had. And Job, being a true disciple, being a true man of God, this is how he responds. Job chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, if we do not love Jesus more than our stuff... We cannot be His disciple. As I began the message, I began it with those, with, with those words that Jesus tells us the cost of discipleship for a reason. He tells us plainly for a reason. He tells us so that we can examine ourselves, so that we can look at our hearts, So that we can see if indeed we are trusting Him enough to surrender all areas of our life to His Lordship. So now let's take and let's let's do that. Let's follow through. Let's examine our hearts. Are you willing to trust Him with your family? Are you willing to love Him and follow Him even if they hate you because of it? Are you willing to trust Him with your life? Are you willing to fling it away if He asks for the sake of the kingdom, even if it means physical suffering or even death? Are you willing to trust Him with your stuff, willing to give up all you have to follow Him if He asks it, even if it means your last penny? Now, I'm I'm not talking about some sense of sinless perfection And I hope that you get that. I'm talking about a willingness, a heart that is willing to surrender all to Jesus. If you're willing, then you can be His disciple. If not, I don't care if you prayed the prayer and wrote the date in the back of your Bible. I don't care if you're the greatest preacher since Spurgeon or if you have the best Sunday school class in the state. You're in danger of hearing on that day when you cry out to Him, Lord, Lord, depart from me. I never knew you. Dear friends, if you've never been challenged like this, if you've never been asked, 
ask to examine your heart like this, then I to, to, to count the cost of what it means to truly be a Christian, then I invite you to do so now. I plead with you to do so now. The call is a call uh, to, to a willingness to surrender all to Christ. It's not just a song, I surrender all. It's a heart that says, I really do surrender all. Your family may not give you cause to choose between them and Christ. But if they do, are you willing to choose Him? God may not cause you to suffer physical pain or even death, but if He does, can you honestly say with Job, in your heart, though He slay me, yet will I follow Him. Though He slay me, yet will I follow Him. God may not ask you to take and sell all that you have and give to the poor. He may not cause you to suffer the loss of all your worldly possessions. But if He does, are you willing to, or or will you still find Him more precious than your stuff? You say to me, Pastor, this, 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 this cost is more than anyone can bear. How can anyone bear a cost like that? And I'll tell you, friends, you're right. It is a cost that is too high, that is, that is, that is too much. How can anyone bear it? Those who are willing. We come in utter dependence to God. We come in utter weakness to the Father, like the man in Mark chapter 9, seeking a healing for his demon-possessed son. Listen to what he says. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We pray like Augustine. Lord, command whatever you will, but please grant what you command. The heart willing to trust Christ and surrender all to Him is a heart that does not knowingly hold anything back from God. Is a heart that does not knowingly hold anything back from God. And the anthem of that heart sings this. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for setting so clearly before us the cost of discipleship. We thank You for Letting us know that you demand everything. Oh, Father, we thank you also for the gospel in which we know that you provide so much more than anything we could hope to gain or clutch onto in this passing world. 
You are truly worthy of all of our time, our treasure, our talents. You are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our families. You are worthy of our stuff. Oh, Father, I pray that You would, if there's anyone here today who does not know Your value, that You would reveal the splendor of the treasure that is You to them that they might gladly go and sell all that they have to have You. Oh, Father, I was reminded this morning of Jim Elliot's famous quote that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Oh, Father, let us be salt and light in this community. Let us be salt and light in this world. Let us be used by You as shining examples of those like the saints of old who are willing to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for showing us the splendor of Your glory. Thank You for showing us Your infinite value and worth. Oh, that we would surrender all to You. In Your name, Amen.